0: I'm Jordan Steingard, Program Manager at Columbia University's Temple Hoyne Buell Center for the Study of American Architecture. This podcast mini-series reflects on a Buell Center publication called The A&E System, Public Works and Private Interest in Architectural and Engineering Services, 2000 to 2020. In these podcasts, you'll hear from students from across GSAP who worked on the A&E System project in its various stages. From early case study research to learning to use public databases, to the development and writing of the publication. In their conversations, they discuss their unique disciplinary perspectives, the role of the built environment in relation to climate change and government, and the ways that this research has shaped how they're moving forward as professionals.
1: My name is Isaac Warshauer and I was a Master of Architecture student at Columbia when I worked within the year, the year uh, 2017 to 2018 for the Beale Center at an earlier phase of the a System Initiative. I graduated in 2019, and I'm now working at a, a small, mostly residential, like probably most small firms in New York City, At a small firm that's in Dumbo, in Brooklyn.
0: My name is Jazen Lin. I just graduated from the Master of Architecture program this spring and just finished the Master of Science in Real Estate Development program. I'm currently working at an affordable housing developer shop called Monadoc Development that also has an in-house construction arm. They primarily do affordable housing, but also have some commercial um, and market rate projects in their portfolio. And I worked on the AD initiative after Isaac in the fall of twenty eighteen to the spring of twenty
1: nineteen. I was involved in 2017 and 2018. The project was still at a changeable phase. The whole scope was was shrinking and growing, and exactly what the end product was was still being determined when I was working with Laura White and Uh, kind of by the end of our tenure at the Buell Center, it had resolved into two videos that we showed at a conference in Ann Arbor. And it was really interesting to be involved in the project at that stage, because we were really coming to terms with exactly how slippery addressing the system really was, as we were looking at all sorts of contract data in, in New Orleans, recovery efforts, looking at all the contracts that the recovery school district had, We were looking at all of this data, we weren't really sure what, what to do with the data at that point. And so trying to figure out what can be done and how to cut through all of the, the rhetoric and the money and all of that and to make something out of it, it was a growing experience. And so I, I'm really glad to have had that chance at the Buell Center to, to try to come to terms with taking stuff that is talked about in the media, but viewing it in a different light and trying to see something a little deeper in all of that. The main thing that I learned about the built environment and the role of architects and engineers in that is so much of, of what architects and engineers do is within the framework of a scope that's already decided. And I think in this project, in terms of, of how uh, power moves through the ANA system, the, the power of the kind of undemocratic aspects of, of American governance Is in the, in setting the scope and determining the flow of the money and, and doing all of that, which mostly occurs before architects and engineers are actually involved. So architects and engineers end up acting essentially as the tools for, um, within this much larger system. And so really, no matter what the, the language is used in the planning process, for instance, the participatory planning process or the language of, uh, environmental resiliency or affordable housing. There can be many good aspects of a project and the project can still be problematic in the sense that the way that the the, the scope is set and the framework is decided then beforehand. For example, maybe the Urban Land Institute plan in New Orleans or all sorts of different plans that we've investigated in this project, no matter the what priorities, they could be very good priorities are taken, green space, environmental resiliency, because all of that can determine what the project's impact is, regardless of the design work itself.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I, I agree with everything Isaac said. And, and just to continue on that, um, you know, when we were looking at New Orleans as a case study, I think there are a lot of different scenarios of environmental injustice that I wouldn't say was something that I wasn't aware of before. But I think this case in particular was very overt. Uh, especially with the ruinization of the public school system um, after Hurricane Katrina, and the kind of projects that were still maintained, even though there was opportunity to kind of address some of the some of the systems of injustice that had facilitated the construction of a lot of these schools on um, very toxic sites before, were unfortunately once again basically neglected um, by public officials, by public infrastructure, and public funding. So, you know, I hope that this case study and what we took away from that is maybe can contribute to the framework that Isaac is talking about in terms of really recognizing these problems in advance and maybe organizing a lot of these communities to be able to have more of an active voice in in the decision making um, instead of relegating the power to a lot of the top down decisions.
1: When I was at the Buell Center, um, we were looking both at New Orleans and at Flint, Michigan, and the context of there are these planning efforts that occurred at, in Flint at the same time that Flint was under an emergency manager, which created an, an interesting scenario in which the town government, which really had no control over the finances of the city, was holding a planning process that could only be approved to the extent that the emergency manager was just willing to go along with it. And so this was an example of a participatory planning process that really had no teeth at all, and, and to the extent that things went forward, I mean, at the time, it seemed like it was really just, it was just something that could be, uh, could be for show. And to some extent, that was an extreme example, but it showed how at times, even if something seems participatory, a lot of that work can, be, can end up being somewhat shallow if the context in which that planning effort is happening is so restricted. Really, the real power was in deciding what could be affected through a participatory process, not how participation happened. I think one fact that really stands out to me was there was a moment or it's something that kind of came up as I was doing some research into Flint. And when I started to to look at all these planning documents that had been happening during the period of emergency management and saw that all these references back to the Mott Foundation or one of the Mott Foundations and it seemed that that all these different efforts to create master plans to determine the future of Flint were in some way or other backed by the Mott Foundation or had some tie to it and then I remember finding this clip of a state senator talking about the fact that the emergency under emergency management the emergency manager seemed to have all these close ties back to the Mott Foundation uh, I mean it makes a lot of sense. Flint is a kind of a company town or kind of became a company town over. Uh, over the years. And so it makes sense that the Mott Foundation with ties to, to GM should have an influence. But even after a lot of the automobile production has left the city, there's this after effect where the foundation with a lot of money that came from automobiles is now dictating a lot of what happens in Flint, even after the founders have passed away, after the company is involved in many other places in the US, there's this legacy. I mean, it just comes down to where the money is, I guess.
0: I remember when I was doing research on the kind of, I guess, funding contracts that were awarded by FEMA after Hurricane Katrina to the public school system. There were, I think, one large contractor, Jacobs. Um, they received the bulk of the contracts at the federal level, and it was there was due to the lack of transparency, I think, in tracking how this funding was spent. Because of the kind of decentralized school system and the turnover and miscommunication between uh, the central school system, and the charter system, and then the private parish schools, there was really a lack of regulation and transparency. So I believe out of you know three different budgets worth millions of dollars, they only fulfilled like 45% of the scope of work that they agreed to, and they, yet yeah, they were awarded the entire contract's So that was definitely very surprising because it was heavily publicized at the time. Yet, you know, due, and I think Isaac was talking about this earlier, due to the kind of disconnect between different levels of government, that was something that was really left kind of unchallenged at the time. I'm currently at an affordable housing developer that is managing several different projects in various stages um, throughout New York. One of the projects that um, I've been involved with is for a low-rise, uh, multi-phased, mixed-income development in East Brooklyn. It's very close to Jamaica Bay. Part of the site um, is on top of a Bradfield area. Um, and I think, you know, we're doing a lot of ground media- remediation, et cetera. But I think, um, similar to what was uncovered in this research, where development for low-income communities often happens on these brownfield sites that need intense remediation it's kind of an unfortunate pattern that I think is something that like is difficult to challenge from the development perspective because of an acquisition basis and cost of land you know you can't due to the increase in cost of land you typically can't build affordable housing on market rate uh, parcels because then you can't justify the rents to cover the acquisition costs. So it kind of becomes a never-ending cycle um, and it it starts to perpetuate uh, this problem. So I I think that's, you know, something that is definitely more discussed now and there's a lot of federal and like state subsidy to change this narrative, but it's still, I think, an ongoing issue.
1: Yeah, I think that I agree with uh, Jazin with how a lot of, from our end, it's hard to it's hard to change the system. But I think the my main takeaway from my work is that I can now at least see the system a little bit differently and understand a little bit more about my role and and how my work may have the certain problems. That when the opportunity comes up to at least make some positive change, it's worth taking. My work is uh, at Eponymous Architecture. It's a four-person firm in in Dumbo, and we mostly do residential work, and most of this work is just for single families, renovations of apartments, renovations of townhouses. So it's hard to really make a change that's relevant to the public sphere that can make any sort of larger impact on the the way the city operates, but it's worth understanding that these renovations are, are happening in particular areas of the city for for reasons. There are only certain parts of the city, and we're mostly doing stuff in Brooklyn, that are seeing a lot of interior apartment and uh, townhouse renovations. And there are areas that are slowly gentrifying, or the, the makeup of the, the city is, of that neighborhood in the city is slowly changing. And it's happening for exactly the same real estate reasons that affordable developments are happening on current brownfield sites. So it's at least worth understanding the context in which that happens. And, and then maybe trying to look for those opportunities when they come up. But yeah, it's, it's a bit of a dilemma.
0: You know, I will say like working under Jordan um, and Jacob and Reinhold Martin with the resource of the Vila Center um, was a fantastic experience. And I think, you know, I was on a team with, with someone who was in planning, someone who was part of the CCP program. And I think really having that multidisciplinary approach Um, to what we're doing, you know, made the difference for the project.